Chapter fifty nine of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumont. Chapter fifty nine After the Storm. Our readers will doubtlessly have been asking themselves how it happened that Athos of whom not a word has been said for some time past, arrive so very opportunately at court. We will, without delay, endeavor to satisfy their curiosity. Porthos, faithful to his duty as an arranger of affairs, had, immediately after leaving the Palace Royal, set off to join Moal at the Minimes in the Bois du Vicennes, and had related everything, even to the smallest details, which had passed between Saint-Aignan and himself. He finished by saying that the message which the king had sent to his favorite would probably not occasion more than a short delay, and that Saint-Aignan, as soon as he could leave the king, would not lose a moment in accepting the invitation Rual had sent him. But Rual, less credulous than his old friend, had concluded from Porthos' recital that if Saint-Aignan was going to the king, Saint-Aignan would tell the king everything, and that the king would most assuredly forbid Saint-Aignan to obey the summons he had received to the hostile meeting. The consequence of his reflections was that he left Porthos to remain at the place appointed for the meeting, in the very improbable case that Saint-Aignan will come there, having endeavored to make Porthos promise that he would not remain there more than an hour or an hour and a half at the very longest. Porthos, however, formally refused to do anything of the kind, but, on the contrary, installed himself in the Minimes as if he were going to take root there, making Rouau promise that when he had been to see his father, he would return to his own apartments, in order that Porthos's servant might know where to find him in case Monsieur de Saint-Aignan should happen to come to the rendezvous. Brazalon had left Vicenza's and proceeded at once straight to the apartments of Athos, who had been in Paris during the last two days, the Comte having already been informed of what had taken place by a letter from D'Artagnan. Rouault arrived at his father's. Athos, after having held out his hand to him and embraced him most affectionately, made a sign for him to sit down. I know you come to me as a man would go to a friend, Vicomte, whenever he is suffering. Tell me, therefore, what it is that brings you now. The young man bowed, and began his recital. More than once in the course of it his tears almost choked his utterance, and a sob, checked in his throat, compelled him to suspend his narrative for a few minutes. Athos most probably already knew how matters stood. As we have just now said, D'Artagnan had already written to him but preserving until the conclusion that calm unruffled composure of manner which constituted the almost superhuman side of his character he replied well i do not believe there is a word of truth in these rumors i do not believe in the existence of what you fear although i do not deny that persons best entitled to the fullest credit have already conversed with me on the subject in my heart and soul i think it utterly impossible that the king could be guilty of such an outrage on a gentleman I will answer for the king, therefore, and will soon bring you back the proof of what I say. Rouault, wavering like a drunken man between what he had seen with his own eyes and the imperturbable faith he had in a man who had never told a falsehood, bowed and simply answered, Go, then, Monsieur le Comte. I will await your return. And he sat down, burying his face in his hands. Athos dressed, and then left him in order to wait upon the king, the result of that interview was already known to our readers. When he returned to his lodgings, Rouault, pale and dejected, had not quitted his attitude of despair. 
At the sound, however, of the opening doors, and of his father's footsteps as he approached him, the young man raised his head. Athos's face was very pale, his head uncovered, and his manner full of seriousness. He gave his cloak and hat to the lackey, dismissed him with a gesture, and sat down near Roal. "'Well, monsieur,' inquired the young man, "'are you convinced yet?' "'I am, Roal. The king loves Mademoiselle de la Valliere.' "'He confesses it, then?' cried Roal. "'Yes,' replied Athos. "'And she?' "'I have not seen her.' "'No, but the king spoke to you about her. What did he say?' "'He says that she loves him.' "'Oh, you see, you see, monsieur!' said the young man with a gesture of despair. "'Roal,' resumed the comte, "'I told the king, believe me, all that you yourself could possibly have urged.' and I believe I did so in becoming language, though sufficiently firm. And what did you say to him, monsieur? I told him, Roual, that everything was now at an end between him and ourselves, that you would never serve him again. I told him that I, too, should remain aloof. Nothing further remains for me, then, but to be satisfied of one thing. What is that, monsieur? Whether you have determined to adopt any steps. Any steps? Regarding what? With reference to your disappointed affection, and your ideas of vengeance. Oh, monsieur, with regard to my affection, I shall, perhaps, some day or other succeed in tearing it from my heart. I trust I shall do so, aided by heaven's merciful help, and your own true exhortations. As far as vengeance is concerned, it occurred to me only when under the influence of an evil thought, for I could not revenge myself upon the one who was actually guilty. I have therefore already renounced every idea of revenge. And you no longer think of seeking a quarrel with Monsieur de Saint-Aignan? No, monsieur. I sent him a challenge. If Monsieur de Saint-Aignan accepts it, I will maintain it. If he does not take it up, I will leave things as they are. And La Valliere? You cannot, I know, have seriously thought that I should dream of revenging myself upon a woman, replied Rouault with a smile so sad that a tear started even to the eyes of his father, who had so many times in the course of his life bowed beneath his own sorrows and those of others. He held out his hand to Raoul, which the latter seized most eagerly. And so, Monsieur le Comte, you are quite satisfied that the misfortune is one beyond all remedy? inquired the young man. Poor boy, he murmured. You think that I still live in hope, said Roual, and you pity me. Oh, it is indeed horrible suffering for me to despise, as I am bound to do, the one I have loved so devotedly. If I had but some real cause of complaint against her, I should be happy. I should be able to forgive her. Athos looked at his son with a profoundly sorrowful air, for the words Roual had just pronounced seemed to have issued out of his own heart. At this moment the servant announced Monsieur d'Artagnan. This name sounded very differently to the ears of Athos and Roual. The musketeer entered the room with a vague smile on his lips. Raoul paused. Athos walked towards his friend with an expression of face that did not escape Brazelon. D'Artagnan answered Athos's look by an imperceptible movement of the eyelid, and then, advancing toward Roual, whom he took by the hand, he said, addressing both father and son, "'Well!' You are trying to console this poor boy, it seems. 
and you kind and good as usual have come to help me in my difficult task as he said this athos pressed d'artagnan's hand between both his own raoul fancied he observed in this pressure something beyond the sense his mere words conveyed yes replied the musketeer smoothing his mustache with the hand that athos had left free yes i have come too you are most welcome chevalier not for the consolation you bring with you but on your own account i am already consoled said raoul and he attempted to smile but the effort was more sad than any tears d'artagnan had ever seen shed it is all well and good then said d'artagnan only continued raoul you have arrived just as the comte was about to give me the details of his interview with the king you will allow the comte to continue added the young man as with his eyes fixed on the musketeer he seemed to read the very depths of his heart his interview with the king said d'artagnan in a tone so natural and unassumed that there was no means of suspecting that his astonishment was feigned you have seen the king then athos athos smiled as he said yes i have seen him yes indeed you are unaware then that the comte had seen his majesty inquired raoul half reassured yes indeed quite so in that case i am less uneasy said raoul uneasy and about what inquired athos forgive me monsieur said raoul but knowing so well the regard and affection you have for me i was afraid you might possibly have expressed somewhat plainly to his majesty my own sufferings and your indignation and that the king had consequently and that the king had consequently repeated d'artagnan well go on finish what you were going to say i have now to ask you to forgive me monsieur d'artagnan said raoul for a moment and i cannot help confessing it i trembled lest you had come here not as monsieur d'artagnan but as captain of the musketeers you are mad my poor boy cried d'artagnan with a burst of laughter in which an exact observer might have perhaps have wished to have heard a little more frankness so much the better said raoul yes mad and you know what i would advise you to do tell me monsieur for the advice is sure to be good as it comes from you very good then i advise you after your long journey from england after your visit to monsieur la gouche after your visit to madame after your visit to porthos after your journey to vicenza i advise you i say to take a few hours rest go and lie down sleep for a dozen hours and when you wake up go and ride one of my horses until you have tired him to death and drawing raoul towards him he embraced him as he would have done his own child athos did the like only it was very visible that the kiss was still more affectionate and the pressure of his lips even warmer with the father than with the friend the young man again looked at both his companions endeavoring to penetrate their real meaning or their real feelings with the utmost strength of his intelligence but his look was powerless upon the smiling countenance of the musketeer or upon the calm and composed features of the comte de la fere where are you going raoul inquired the latter seeing that Brazalon was preparing to go out to my own apartments replied the latter in his soft sad voice we shall be sure to find you there then if we should have anything to say to you yes monsieur but do you suppose it likely you will have something to say to me how can i tell said athos yes something fresh to console you with said d'artagnan pushing him towards the door raoul observing the perfect composure which marked every gesture of his two friends quitted the comte's room carrying away with him nothing but the individual feeling of his own particular distress 
Thank heaven, he said. Since that is the case, I need only think of myself. And, wrapping himself up in his cloak, in order to conceal from the passers-by in the streets his gloomy and sorrowful face, he quitted them, for the purpose of returning to his own rooms, as he had promised Porthos. The two friends watched the young man as he walked away with a feeling of genuine disinterested pity. Only each expressed it in a different way. Poor Raoul, said Athos, sighing deeply. Poor Raoul, said D'Artagnan, shrugging his shoulders. End of chapter 59 Recording by Todd